morning again, everyone. Good morning. So, I guess it was a little over two months ago now. I was listening to an author and speaker, um, someone who is really considered a, one of the, the modern rural experts and, and trusted voices in the world of, of children's ministry, especially. Um, and, and the intersection of, of family and church as we, as we develop faith in, in young people. And he was talking about time and the time that we have with, not just with kids, with all people really, but specifically he was talking about with our children. He was talking about the different things that really matter when they're expressed over time. Where as a, as a one-shot might have some sort of an impact. This guy's named Reggie Joyner, by the way, if I didn't mention his name. I want to give him credit here. But if done one time, it might be remembered. It might make an impact. But things that when done over the course of time make all the difference in the world. One of the things that he, he mentioned in this, in this list, there were several things that he was talking about in this particular talk, but he said that love over time is believable. Love one time might make an impact. Love expressed in one shot might be remembered, might make that impact, but love, when it's expressed over time, over the long course of time, consistently being shown, that's when we start to believe that love is real. That's when we start to really understand and appreciate it. And he went on to, to draw this parallel, saying that we know that God loves us because he loved us, not just once, but because he loved us over time. And that love over time was able to give us an appreciation and an understanding of the depth of his love. And he threw this idea out here that he said this is just sort of his take on this, his opinion, but I think there's something to it. He went back to the garden. He went back to Adam and Eve. He went back to that first moment when sin entered the picture. When that first wall of separation was built between man and God. And said, you know, God being God, nothing is outside of of the realm of possibility for God. And so God being God, he could have saved right then. He, he could have let, I don't know, maybe just 24 hours or less pass between when sin enters the world and when he conquers sin and death through his son Jesus. He could have done it right away, but he didn't. And so it kind of leaves you with the question of why did he wait so long? Why did he take so long for his plan to be carried out? Now, in what I know of God, I know that he does things for reasons. He's not arbitrary. He's not capricious. There's a good reason for God to do the things that he does and for him to do them the way he does them. And I don't think we'll ever be able to fully wrap our minds around the wisdom of his plan and why he chose to do things the way he did. But, but Reggie Joyner, he said that maybe just part of that reason, maybe just one small piece of it, was that he wanted us to see the length and the depth and the seriousness of his love as he expresses love to us over the span of time. 
He used the whole span of human history to show us the great length to which he would go for us. Because clearly, at the beginning, we, humanity, we didn't really understand or appreciate the value of what we had. That's the line, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. We didn't appreciate what was being thrown away in that act of disobedience. And I can't help but think that maybe, just maybe, God knew that we didn't get it. And if he had just snapped his fingers, if he had just let not more than a moment pass between the fall and the rescue, we probably wouldn't have learned much. We, as a human race, probably would not have still understood what it was that is lost when we sin against God. I can't help but think that maybe Mr. Joyner was right. And maybe God in his wisdom saw that, you know, they need to see what they've thrown away. They need to understand the seriousness of what they've lost by rejecting me. And then they will see this epic quest of God that he would undertake to redeem his people. We will see something play out over the grand scale of history so that we can really understand and appreciate and really believe in the love that God has for us. Now I have to say that we are incredibly blessed that we live on this side of the story. Where we can see and know and experience the fulfillment of humanity's waiting. But we still have our own waiting to be fulfilled. And we still have joy that awaits us along the way. I've been talking about waiting this past couple of weeks. And there's joy in the fulfillment of that waiting. Because, like we talked about last week, time can build trust, but I really think time can also build joy as we understand the magnitude of the joy that's set before us. And I can't think of any better example of this than Simeon. This passage that we read, I'll read a small portion of it again. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's, that's Simeon's job description right there. As far as Scripture is concerned, that's, that's, that's his number one priority. What's his job? He waits for the consolation of Israel. That's what Simeon is about. He spent his life waiting for what he knows is going to come because he knows God is faithful. He knows God is trustworthy. And so he waits Because, see, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Wow. Not a bad gig. (laughs) It's been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit that you will see him before you die. This long wait This anticipation that's been building up for hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds, even thousands of years. So, I mean, you're going to see it with your own eyes. 
Now, I know most of us as kids, as like Christmas is getting close, like we can hardly stand it because we know that presents are coming. We know some good stuff is coming. I mean, I was awful about this as a kid. I mean, like Christmas Eve, me falling asleep was all but impossible. I mean, I was just too excited. Now, think about that excitement that we might feel as children, knowing that something good is coming, when you've been told by God himself, you're going to see the fulfillment of all the promises that have been made over these centuries to your people. I wonder if Simeon ever slept. (laughs) I wonder if he ever came down off of, I mean, he must have just run on adrenaline, knowing that around the next corner, in the next moment, maybe he was going to see him. And that anticipation built and built and built and built until one day, Mary and Joseph come to the temple. And he sees this child and he knows. And he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Ever heard someone say, well, I could die happy now? This is the ultimate, I can die happy now. I'm good, Lord. I'm, I'm, there's nothing else that could top this, God. I'm happy now. I, my waiting has been fulfilled. And that anticipation that he felt was just met with such joy. Joy that I can't help but think would not have been as great if he hadn't known that this was coming. That if he hadn't spent his life in anticipation of this moment. And I love that he just saw the leading edge with his own eyes. He just saw the very beginning of God's fulfillment of his promise. And he said, oh, that's enough. I'm good. And this baby, for him, was the fullness of God's faithfulness. Before the word became flesh, had even spoken his first word, as far as Simeon was concerned, the mission of God was as good as done. It's here. We're set. I'm happy now. His waiting on God had led him to fully, wholeheartedly embrace joy as soon as it arrived. Wow, could we ever use that spirit among God's people? It's a line that I've heard uh, a couple of times that is probably going to make no sense in a sermon at first, but just bear with me. Every day someone is born who has never seen the Flintstones. (laughs) Now, let me explain that for a second. I heard this in the context of this idea that every day there are things that we just sort of take for granted. Things that we just think, well, everybody knows about that. Everybody's seen that. Everybody's heard that. Everybody is already on the same page about this, right? And someone said in the context of this, he said, okay, every day there's somebody born who has never seen the Flintstones. Every day there's someone who all of the cultural icons, all of the common knowledge, all the things that we just take for granted that everyone knows and has experienced. You know what? Somebody was just born just a few minutes ago somewhere in this world and they've never seen any of it. They've never heard any of it. Every day new lives are coming into this world that need to experience for the very first time that same joy that Simeon experienced. That same joy that we've gotten to experience. They need to experience the the arrival of Jesus Christ into their world for the first time. 
And for those of us who have experienced his arrival, those of us who have heard the good news, the glad tidings of great joy, every day, well, there's still a choice to be made. Will this be another day of waiting for me? Or will this be a day in which I fully embrace the joy of his arrival? Will I let my eyes see Jesus when he shows up today? Or am I just going to keep trying to face this day alone in darkness? You see, our souls still wait when we exchange the joy of a fully embraced with God life. We exchange that for a bolted-on church addition to our normal life. There just to placate our fears about the afterlife. There's a real difference there between embracing the joy of God's faithfulness and just making sure we make it to church on a Sunday. Do we find our joy in the coming of a kingdom like Simeon did? Or do we try to manufacture our joy by creating our own kingdom in the world? Do we act like babies and and cry when the world doesn't agree with everything I believe? When Jesus himself said, hey, the world's going to hate you because they hated me. And if you're following me, you should expect the world to act accordingly. Or do we act like bullies and choose a path of power just to show them who they're messing with? When we serve a Savior who stood before his accusers, silent like a sheep before his shearers. Do we fight a war in our culture to get our own way and make it easy to live a life that we tell ourselves is Christian? Or do we recognize that, hey, the war's already been won? We are not of this world. Our king's kingdom is not of this world. And the kingdom of heaven is breaking in wherever we go because we have joy that cannot be taken from us. My sermon got changed a lot this week. Not really according to my original plan because I have been sorely disappointed this week. As one of the celebrities of popular Christianity has borne the consequence of speaking an unpopular opinion in a world that's ready to focus on the most inflammatory and attention-getting peace, to get the most eyeballs, the most ears, the most attention. But you see, I haven't been disappointed in the world. Now, because it's always been this way. I expect it from the world, honestly. It's always thus and always thus will be. I expect it from the world, but honestly, I expect better from us. I expect better from Christians. Because this week I have seen and I have heard people who claim to wear the name of Christ suggest that we respond to the world in a way that is anything but Christ-like. Their joy being found not in Christ's appearing, not in the joy of the kingdom that they possess, not in the joy of the arrival of an otherworldly kingdom, but their joy seeming to be found in the base pleasure 
of stooping to the tactics of the enemy of God. So many people find such joy in finding the next thing to be angry about. The next thing to lash out about. And honestly, the next thing that becomes and and it gives a black eye to Christ's church and does such great damage to every local body of Christ that's trying to reach its community but might never be heard because of the loud and angry voices that have been our first missionaries to the ears of those who need to hear the truth. But instead of hearing of joy, instead of hearing about the arrival of the kingdom, the first thing they've heard is hatred and judgment. And we wonder why our numbers diminish as our message is befouled by something other than the gospel. Many outside observers would say, and some inside observers also say, do you want to get a passionate response from a modern American Christian? Don't tell them of the poor. Don't tell them of children dying from preventable disease and malnourishment. Don't tell them of entire people groups in this world today that don't even have the Bible translated into their own language, let alone having missionaries, having voices to proclaim the good news to them. Don't tell them about the brokenness in this world that must break God's heart. Just tell them you disagree. Tell them that you don't want their opinion representing your organization, your company, your brand. Tell them that their favorite store won't greet them by invoking the name of Christ as they come in to indulge in crass and idolatrous consumerism. I'm just going to let that one go. Tell them that those who don't live by their faith don't choose to live according to their morality. Oh, you can get some passion then. I think the modern American church has sadly, has tragically filled herself with anger. Because she's forgotten where she would find her joy. Not in turning this world into her own private kingdom. But finding it in acknowledging and exulting in the kingdom of heaven that has already come if we will only stop being so blind to its presence and start acting like our king. Stop trying to make the inhabitants of this world subject to our rule. And instead, start loving them enough to see to it that they're adopted into our family. Loving them with the same love that led God to send His Son to die for them so that they too could be called his sons and his daughters. But instead, so many remain addicted to the drug of our own anger. And the pushers, the dealers on cable news and talk radio, hey, they're getting rich off of our addiction, by the way. And like any addiction, it's killing us. It's destroying our capacity for joy. Joy that our Father so desperately wants to give us. That He has gone to such great lengths to give us. 
But instead, like the rest of the world, we jump from one crisis to the next, one tragedy to the next, one flash of anger to the next. All the while neglecting an abiding and constant recognition of the ever-present kingdom of God. We become like the rest of the world when we delight in the appearance of evil. When it gives us something to get fired up about. By the way, that is quite literally satanic. Satan, the, the accuser, the one who would seek to tear down and destroy, he delights when he sees evil in this world. He delights when he sees a tool to get people paying attention, not to God, not to his kingdom, not to the Son of God reigning forever, but instead paying attention to brokenness and pain and evil. I don't want to find my joy where Satan finds his. God weeps over sin. He is heartbroken that his creation would stray from him. But so many of us get so excited to have something new to shout about. Which I can't help but think places our hearts very, very far from the heart of God. We, we shout about the things we disagree with. We shout about our rights. I don't see Jesus claiming his rights. The one who really could claim all rights as creator of the universe, I see him laying them aside and telling us to do the same, telling us, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. The only time I see rights being exercised in the New Testament is when Paul exercises his right of appeal to Caesar. Not for his own benefit, but so that he could continue proclaiming the word of God. That he could continue spreading the gospel. Hey, we could even get it to Rome, the capital of the world where there will be so many ears to hear. We have to remember that we are aliens and strangers in this world. We can very easily try to be citizens, even rulers in this world. We can so naturally seek power. When God says, hey, you have my power. My power. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You have all power at your disposal to do my will. But we say, no, we we want power like the world has power. We say to the prophet Samuel, no, we want a king like the other nations. And remember what God said to the prophet Samuel when, his, when Israel asked for a king, said, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And that didn't go so well for them. It didn't go so well for us either. And you say, but wait, but there is sin. There is injustice. There are enemies of God in this world. Shouldn't that temper our joy? Or shouldn't that cause us to reserve our joy for a later time when all things are fulfilled and when Christ comes? There was a proclamation made. A proclamation of joy. Not a promise of joy later, but a proclamation of great joy. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. 
This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace on those whom his favor rests. Simeon didn't say, hey, look, here's the Messiah. There's going to be joy someday. Now he rejoiced in the moment when he understood that God is faithful and his promises are kept today. His joy comes today. His kingdom is here today. God's faithfulness is on display now. The king's arrival happens now. But when we participate in the world's economy of anger and outrage, instead, we're complicit with the world as it seeks to steal our joy. I saw online, uh, Patrick Mead wrote this little line as he was talking about this whole issue this week. He said, My job is to love all in the name of Christ and bring heaven down daily. Perpetual outrage and fear do not help me accomplish those tasks. Why should we expect the world in which we are aliens and strangers? Why should we expect the world to be fair? Why should we expect the world to be just? Why should we expect the faithless to act like the faithful? Is our message to the world, you have to live according to these rules? Or is our message to the world, Jesus is Lord, the King has come, rejoice? You see, that first one, it makes some good Pharisees. The second one makes some good disciples. And we could make so many disciples. If we would just fight these battles in the context of a war that has already been won. If we would just play this game according to the kingdom's rules rather than the world's rules. You see, the thing about joy... We talk about joy so much this time of year, but the real thing about joy is that it is contagious. It is highly contagious. But so is anger. So which one will you spread today? One can draw a crowd pretty quick to start throwing stones. But the other can send people on their way rejoicing and praising God for what He has done. The world will always be ready to tell you that the joy is gone. They are all too ready to tell you that message. But there is a baby in a manger who grew up to be a man on a cross, who was raised and ascended as king at the right hand of God, who is ready to tell you instead that joy has come. Joy is here today, right now. And he asks you the question, will you take hold of that joy today? Will you take hold of the joy to be offered, the joy that is found in Christ and His arrival and His kingdom and only in Christ's arrival and in His kingdom? Will you take hold of that joy today? I pray that all of us would. And I pray that if there is any way that we can help you take hold of that joy today, the joy only found in the kingdom of God, If there's any way we can help you take hold of it today, please come and let us know while we stand and while we sing.